Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March 31st, 2022. We've been doing a lot of shows recently about the planet, the land, particularly the American land. About a week ago, I did a show with the uh, American naturalist Tony Hiss on why we need to rescue half of the planet. Uh, he has a new book out, Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. And then at the beginning of the week, we did a show on saving big forests with the conservationist John W. Reed, who is co-author of a new book called Evergreen. Today, we're focusing on American nature, but focusing on something slightly different, uh, a narrative, uh, an incredibly creative, beautifully written uh, nonfiction narrative by the New Yorker writer Ben McGrath called River Man, which is in, in some ways, I guess, uh, a, a kind of pain to American uh, nature and geography. Um, ben is joining me from his home in Piermont, just north of Manhattan in New York. Uh, ben, Talk to me a little bit about this book. It's um, I, I've read it as a labor of love, but perhaps you might put it in slightly different language in terms of why you wrote the book, how it arose out of your original New Yorker piece and what you want your readers to get from it. Yeah, I mean, initially it began as a as a kind of a <clears throat> it was like a Santa Claus arriving in my in my hometown. Um, this, this man just, you know, I live right near the Hudson River. It's about 200 miles out my window that way, sorry, 200 feet out my window that way. Um, and one day this guy who, you know, kind of big bearded guy wearing overalls just came right down the river in a in an overloaded canoe and said he was on his way to Florida. Um, and I had my then toddler at the time with me. And I, my, my sort of my first thought was, wow, this is a cool uh, bedtime story for for my kid to tell him about where we live and how exciting it is to be on a river. Unexpected things can happen. And, um, and, and one of the things that struck me about, you know, he was, he was doing this very kind of American thing, uh, sort of almost Forrest Gumpian or something about. Yeah. You know, and he looks, I mean, from the photos I've seen, he looks Forrest Gumpian too. Yeah. And, 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 and that, that, struck me as, as interesting, but also that he often, when you have people doing, uh, doing questy kind of things today, I found, especially as a journalist, they, they tend to have a, a, an angle or, a, or, you know, they're, they're promoting something or they've got a cause, you know, you know, we mentioned a pain to, to American nature. Often they're doing it to, to preserve water quality or they're doing it to, and this guy, he wasn't. And so there was something immediately mysterious to me about why. What year was this, Ben? Is it 2015? 2014 was when I first met him. Yeah. Right. And uh, and I and I was sort of sort of struck by him, and he was very very personable. You but you have to you know you assume when someone's doing something like this, he was in his sixties. Uh, so something's not right with him with his life. Obviously, it, it, it's not. It a lot of people look at someone doing something like this, and they and they think, "Wow, I wish that was me." But there's a reason that it's not them, right? Um, and yet he was extremely personable, and so that was what initially drew me uh, to. to spend time with him and, and to write about him and then why it became a labor of of love and, and a, well, before kind of we, we, let, let, sorry to jump in here sure. describe 
what this canoe was like. I mean, it was essentially his life, right? It was his home. Yeah, so that's right. It was it, this was a red plat. I mean, in the picture you showed, it was a green canoe because that was from a previous trip. He, he, yeah. One of the things I learned was that he had done this kind of thing before. Um, in in my case, it was a red canoe. You see that in that picture there. It's a red plastic yeah. Ullman canoe. He bought it for three hundred dollars at Dick's Sporting Goods in Plattsburgh, New York, which was as close to the Canadian border as he could get by Greyhound bus. Um, and so you know, he, he took a bus from Montana to to Plattsburgh walked walked into dick's sporting goods bought a canoe and bought a like a set of wheels to pull it on and just dragged it four miles over to lake champlain and put it in the water but yeah and then it was over you know it had duffel bags and you know trash bags within trash bags within trash bags which was a kind of a, a system he'd worked out for flotation and for keeping things dry um, and he had, you know, he had a laptop in, in the canoe with him. And he so it had, wasn't like a, a homeless person who happened to live in a canoe. Well, so he was, I mean, one of the things that that I, I learned after the, the, I guess the third day I talked to him was when he told me that he was uh, what other people would call homeless. He he didn't use the, the term himself, but I, ha I hadn't deduced that previously. He was extremely well educated and very up on current events and, and was able to converse with you know, any kind of person. And so I, I assumed that he was an eccentric person. He talked about living in Montana and he had various jobs. Um, so it wasn't immediately apparent to me that he was homeless, but yeah, he was, he was camping on the riverbanks wherever he went and, and all his belongings, except for what I later learned, he had some storage lockers around stashed around the country, but all his belongings were otherwise in the canoe. So Ben, as we all know you are a writer at the new yorker you began as a fact checker in 1999 you've been a staff writer since 2003 did the new yorker light bulbs go off in your head as soon as you met this guy what were you thinking as a writer well so the first the first day i met him it was actually labor day and i was you know essentially off the clock and i had my toddler with me um and so I was really more focused on this guy. He, he he kind of found his way into my neighbor's house and was being served breakfast and kind of feted. Uh, what do you mean, food. found his way into your neighbor's house? Well, so my neighbor, uh, also an interesting guy who spends a lot of time on the river, uh, just whistled him ashore and said, uh, come in and meet my friends because he looked interesting. Um, and then that, that was how I, you know, my son and I were down by the river uh, and my neighbor then gestured over his stone wall and said, you know, he knew I was a writer. And he said, you might want to meet this guy. He's paddling from Canada to Florida. Um, but at that point, my son was, uh, I, you know, I talked about how I, I quickly, the light bulb in my own head went to thinking like, oh, well, this is a bedtime story if nothing else. My son was really more interested in rearranging the furniture in my neighbor's house. So I was trying to get us out of there, to be honest. And then it, it the light bulb went off later that night. Uh, I looked. The, I looked him up online and could find almost no trace of him, which is pretty unusual now. You know, and even in 2014, the idea that a 60-year-old man has almost no trace on the internet um, struck me as intriguing. And so the, the next day, I decided I missed this chance. I mean, it was a you, you know from a New Yorker story point of view, it was it was an obvious talk of the town story, and I. Um, so I had to track him down and it was difficult to find him. I almost didn't find him and luckily I did. And what was his feeling about being written about? 
He was pleased. I mean, he wasn't, he was this interesting mix of not at all a self promoter, uh, again, which, which is what I liked about him because like, like I said, a lot of people come at you with, with a hustle and, and, and want, want to sell something. And he wasn't like that, but he, what I later learned is he was someone who felt overlooked um, in a lot of his life and was gratified that someone was interested in hearing his stories. The other part of it, which he later, which he told me as we got to know each other a little better, is that he fancied himself a writer, and he had some thumb drives with him in the canoe, in addition to the laptop, and he was writing books, as he called them, recording all each of his trips. He said he had three, you know, he'd written three books, he just wasn't published yet, and he talked about maybe sending me some of his writing, and he and he had the idea as we talked more that maybe if I wrote an article about him, it would help him get published. Subtitle of the book, Ben, is an American odyssey. Is that the right word to describe uh, the, the subject of this book? Was he on an odyssey? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, certainly he he was extremely well read, and there was a sense in which he was he was kind of using the the the, the questing trope. Go whether you go back to you know the Aeneid or or Don Quixote or whatever. He he was aware of the fact that these journeys he was on kind of fit in a tradition and that, that, and that gave him a context for being un understood or at least not, not creeping people out. Um, the sense in which it, it is uh, a slight misnomer is he often wrote in his book about the sense in which he was not actually out uh, looking for himself or trying, he was, he was just trying to discover other things. You know, people misinterpreted him as like, like, like they're, like their friend from college who who went to Europe to find herself. And he wasn't, he was adamant that he was not trying to find himself or to find anything in particular. He was just trying to see geography and meet interesting people because the alternative for him was, uh, you know, life in a swamp in Montana where he was unhappy. Rather than an odyssey, this is really an American story, isn't it? It is, totally. And his, his upbringing was kind of quintessentially all-American in many ways. You know, his father was a military man. There were nine kids in the family. Uh, they were, you know, kind of in a Catholic town. Um, all, you know, all played sports, Boy Scout, that kind of thing. I think he even described it as a leave, leave it to beaver childhood. And you pieced together his life and indeed his family uh, for, did you initially piece it together for the article or for the book? A little of a little of each. I mean, so for the article, I, I like I mentioned earlier, when someone's doing something this unusual, you have to wonder what the what the background conditions are that leads to it. Um, and though he was very charismatic and personable, I a little and a little of me thought, well, wait, wait, there's something strange. He, there's no, there's almost no Google footprint of this guy. What you know, what's how much of this is legit? Um, so I did want to do a certain amount of, of vetting just just before putting, you know, you know, I was trying to portray this guy as a kind of bard of American waterways. And I didn't want to get exposed after the fact by the learning that he was, in fact, an escaped convict or something. And you can't um, do this right, Ben. I mean, the, the waterways are one of the few public spaces where you can essentially drift around America. Um, yeah, without it, being arrested or attacked. It's true. I mean, the the the, the in a way, the the 
the kind of the margins of of the riverbanks on either uh, are kind of the last, you know, the sort of hidden frontier that's left. You know, we we live in a country without frontier anymore, but the the kind of the original passageways have this have the, have these slivers on either side that are kind of uh, no man's land where where you can you can be live a life that is a little bit out of 1930 or 1880 if if you want. Um, and that was one of the things I discovered as I continued uh, retracing his his path is that there were many such you know the, the characters that he met all all them all seemed kind of like versions of of uh, of him or or they, they, you know they almost almost too much like out of the pages of Mark Twain. I mean the, those characters mm -hmm. that, which was you why, know, if that's the case and there were lots of them. Why did you choose to write? I mean the the article is one thing. A book is quite another. So the the main thing that happened is, so as I mentioned, I met I met the guy. I write an article about him. Uh, three months later, I get a phone call, uh, and my second son had just been born. I was I answered the phone. My wife was kind of annoyed. I, it was just on a whim. I answered it. It was un, an unfamiliar phone number, and a guy with a southern accent asked me if my name is Ben McGrath and says he's investigating a missing boater. He's a park ranger in North Carolina, um, and some people had found this Dick's canoe upside down um, in uh, in a body of water that I now, he didn't really give me too much information. Yeah. Um, the presumed death of, I mean. Right. I guess. And, and at the time, he, again, he, it was an ongoing investigation and he, and he, he didn't, he didn't want to divulge much, but he was, in fact, at the time he thought that maybe I was the owner of the canoe because what had happened is they had found among all the, the stuff that this guy had packed into his canoe, was a piece of paper that I had given him where he'd asked me to write down my contact information. And, and so that when they pulled it out at the scene, they found a piece of paper with a name that was mine and a phone number that was mine and they called it and they were hoping that I could tell them, oh yes, you found my canoe. Um, instead, I started trying to connect. They wanted to find his family. So I was able to connect them based on the things he had told me about his family. I was able to put them in touch with a brother in Georgia, with whom I had never previously spoken, I didn't, I didn't really want to get involved at the time when he was just going on the journey. He mentioned that he didn't tell his family when he was doing these things because he didn't want them to worry. But I was able to put them in touch with his family. And then what? What? And then a few months went by, uh, and what drew me in to the to answer your question about about the book is eventually a friend of the family reached out to me uh, and said there are a couple of brothers who live not too far from you and they would like to meet you. And so I went uh, to meet them at a, at a bar uh, a few miles from my house. And just kind of sheepishly, they started shoveling over uh, documents to me. And these, these were, you know, manuscripts of, from the book that he'd mentioned having written. Um, and I, so I started reading through those. And then I saw allusions to storage lockers where he'd been paying rent um, from the rivers. You know, he was going... He's while he's paddling down the Hudson River, he stops in town, goes to a post office, mails a check to a to a storage facility in Heber City, Utah. But turns out he hadn't lived there in 20 years, but he was still paying rent on those storage lockers. So then I ended up going to accompany another one of his brothers to to see what was in those storage lockers, and that really was the thing that that made it um, a kind of a book length project in my mind because there were two lockers stuffed the gills with with records of his life you know paintings and journals and 
you know, fo photographed thousands of photographs dating back all the way to his childhood. He had meticulously uh, recorded everything in his life. Ben, tell me about this man then. What did you discover? Well, so the the one the main thing I learned from um, the, the two things I learned from talking to his family right away were one that he had been uh, unlike I mentioned before that you someone's doing this you think all right something's not quite going right in their life to be doing this. What I learned was that as a child actually he was he was the opposite he was a star he was he was in fact in his in his, his high school yearbook he was voted uh, Mr. Picture Perfect um, he he was a the you know in the, in the he was in the National Honor Society. He was the head of Senior Prank Day. He was the class president. He was a varsity athlete. He was from a, what, a, a conventional middle class family, American family. That's right. And he went, you know, he went to he went to Woodstock and interacted with Jimi Hendrix. I mean, everything, every everything about his story it was kind of a fit. He kind of an exemplar of the times. And he, and he in that in that vein too, he indulged in the counterculture. Um, he. Um, so he 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 led this very interesting American life. The other thing that started to happen toward in early adulthood is that he began to be, become paranoid. Uh, and so the thing that I learned from from his the way his his family uh, kind of simplified it for me was two things. One, they said that the phrase that he used was that he had mental barnacles to keep them within the nautical theme, but that he was sort of afraid of overstaying his welcome, um, and that part of the, so he he'd come up with a solution which was moving constantly because he couldn't really stay in one place and be can be happy you know he worried he was just wary if he stayed he worried that other people were talking about him so he came up with a, but if he had just walked around you know if he just hitchhiked or hopped on trains i don't think he would have had the same success there's the, the sort of the ingenuity of the buying himself a canoe and exploring these rivers and he was connecting rivers right he wasn't just doing the mississippi river he was doing the Tom Bigby River to the Tennessee River to the Holston River. He was linking waterways, and it was intriguing enough and and novel enough that uh, it gave it gave him a social life that he couldn't have had if he if he'd stayed put. Is there a commentary on America in this in this American story, Ben, of someone perhaps who should have been, if not institutionalized, certainly looked after in some way to make his life. And I, and I use this word carefully better or perhaps more conventional, more normal, or perhaps this is how he wanted to live. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, part of it is all a function of the, of the, the generation he was in, right? I mean, uh, um, we now, I think, have a, have a clear understanding of ment mental illness as having a kind of a genetic component um, that, that at the time when he was growing up and these things were happening, people... Uh, tended to blame the mother or some other, you know, there was, maybe he took some bad acid and it fried his brain. Or, you know, there was a, there was an incident, he went to a seminary briefly when he was in ninth grade and, and, and he was either expelled or begged to come home. Something happened and there was you know, intimations of, of priestly misconduct. I mean, there, there were all these hints of, you know, like something happened to him to cause him to, to break. Um, and I think now, we people are more uh, willing to, to to see this as something that 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 can run in family lines, and and indeed it has in in that family in, in different fashions. Um, but he resisted medical treatment. I mean, he he this is something he he wrote about. His mother tried to intervene with him at one point, and they tried to put him on lithium, and he didn't want it. And he when he was in the navy, uh, he was placed on medical leave, and the, they tried to. 
um, you know, they give them various diagnoses and they tried to put them on, on um, Haldol, which is a, a kind of a, an antipsychotic. And he, he didn't enjoy that. It, 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 he was a, he was a kind of a raconteur and, and being medicated made him lose his, his sense of specialness. This is again, the challenge with having been a kind of a golden boy as a child is he, he had a hard time accepting um, norm, just a, a kind of a, a normal life rather than an exceptional life. So the rivers were kind of his, in my interpretation, his form of self-medication. And you could argue that maybe he would have been better off if, if he'd been, if, if, better intervention had had reined him in on the other hand i think he did a pretty remarkable job of of finding a way through a difficult life i mean he sounds reasonably genial he had no um involvement with the police people weren't robbing him fighting him yeah i mean he it helped he was very large so he was um he was an imposing uh physical presence but had a had a very warm uh kind of disarming voice and a, and a sort of a belly laugh. That's why I mentioned Santa Claus earlier. Um, so he he was extremely good at, at disarming people quickly. Otherwise, I think he could have run into a fair amount. And he had some run-ins with police. I don't mean, you know, that he was brought to trial or anything, but I, you know, sometimes he, he got into a town where the police said, you can't camp here. And he had to either argue with them or, or, or leave and paddle through the night. And, and it was treacherous he one of the things he found and you mentioned this in terms of the american commentary is that the people who live along the rivers in america tend to be extremely welcoming of strangers um and a lot of these people uh, a lot of these towns he was paddling through especially like on the ohio river say he's paddling through kind of the border of indiana and kentucky and some of those towns he's stopping in have 15 30 people in populations so they're not they're not you know cosmopolitan in the strict sense, but they tended to be very welcoming of, of difference in a way that kind of, I think a secluded mountain kind of hill country people aren't, maybe, maybe not, right? You hear stories and I've had experiences as a reporter where you drive up into, into kind of clannish hill country and everyone kind of looks and knows the sound of the vehicle and knows if you don't belong. There's something about a river, which is a kind of a connecting force that that imposes a kind of a, I don't know, a worldliness on, on the inhabitants. Even if, even if everyone there is kind of resigned to, to staying put, they're kind of, the river is their entertainment and, and something comes in. A guy told me in one of these towns, a population 15 or so, that he thought that these river towns were a lot like Alaska, right? Alaska attracts people who are, and Key West was like this, right? For a long time, the, the sort of the, the ends of the country and the, and the continent attract people who, who can't fit elsewhere. They're, they're kind of moving their, pulling out to the edges and the rivers kind of threading in between also collect those people and those towns tend to be pretty welcoming uh the book is is beautifully written as as one would expect from a staff writer on the new yorker um did you ever consider turning it into a novel is there a especially since you were in in some senses inventing his life there was wasn't a lot of proof one way or the other did you ever consider turning this into a novel as opposed to creative nonfiction, which is, is a classic formal? Well, so I would, I would dispute the idea that there wasn't a lot of proof. And, that's, and, and I did think of it kind of as a novel in certain ways, but I thought of it as, as a, a rare opportunity um, to write a kind of nonfiction novel. What I mean about the proof is that he, 
part of his way of dealing with his condition is that he documented things so obsessively mm. that it was able, you know, I, I interviewed more than 200 people he met um, along this or that river and he kept receipts and he took photographs of everything. And so in spite of the fact that he was paranoid and had, you know, had a mind that tended to wander, I actually came to believe, and you mentioned earlier that I started my career as a fact checker. I came to believe that though you can sometimes spot the paranoia in his writing, that he's actually a more reliable narrator than than you or I, probably, on average. Certainly me. Yeah. So, you know, if you were, you know, if, if when we, when we, when we finish this, this uh, discussion and we go and talk to our friends and, and, and they ask us to recount what happened, you were, we'll probably, you know, be about 80% accurate in recounting it just because of inattention to detail or, or whatever. And I would say that Dick Conan probably would be closer to 90% accurate in recounting a conversation like this. So it was, and, and he wrote because he suffered, you know, he almost, it kind of veered into sort of like graphomania or something. He wrote down a lot of his thoughts. I mean, he had a lot of time on his hands. Um, and he, so it was, it, it became possible and, and, tempting to me as a writer um where you know as as a, as a reporter you're often struggling to you know you don't get as you're, you're struggling with access you want to get enough information to be able to kind of inhabit a, a, a real person the way a novelist can but you're always fighting and, and everything is a little bit too staged and here was a as close as an opportunity as i think i'm i'm likely ever to get to actually be inside the mind of someone and be able to recreate um their events because he documented it so well so this you call it a non-fiction novel. That's the way I, I I started to think of it. Yeah. Um, are there models for this? Are other books that you were trying to emulate in some way? Other writers that you see yourself as part of a tradition? Well, I mean, I think the the not that I not that I saw this connection myself, but the the non-fiction novel. Uh, term I think was in was one that Truman Capote came up with for himself I I, I didn't see right. that parallel in, in myself I mean as a New Yorker writer there are people you know Joseph Mitchell used to write a lot about about uh, similar kinds of characters and also tended to gravitate to the waterfront and so people uh, made that connection and I thought a little bit about um, you know Ian Fraser's exploration of the Great Plains mm. I I've thought a little bit about that in terms of doing for for the riverbanks of America what what he did to kind of just to sort of expand your sense of imagination about about the geography. But I you know and obviously you know that there's as I mentioned earlier there's this kind of tradition especially in America there's you know it's the overused idea of the Huck Finn kind of there is this there is the the the, the idea in the American canon of of the river vagrant um but I, I, I don't know. It's, I think it's a pretty one of the challenges with with selling the book. Maybe is that it's, I think it's kind of unusual, um, and and I just I just wrote it with with what I had. I I, I wanted to get inside a character um, with with more access than I've ever. How has the family responded to the book? Have they? I assume they've all read it. They have. Um, they've been extremely supportive. Uh, they, you know, I think for them it's been it was a couple things. One, it was difficult. Uh, to live with him, you know, he, it's I, you know, I've made I've written him more or less as a hero, though without without hiding the fact that a lot of his life was a little bit gritty and and difficult. But he was if if you met him and he wasn't on a river trip, I think it was it was difficult, and it's he was fairly estranged from his from his siblings. So 
they a lot of them hadn't it was easier for me to go through his writing and his storage lockers with a kind of curiosity that for them it was sort of wearying they looked at it i think and and just thought oh this is this is i'm you know they're i'm they're staring at evidence of 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 dickie's mania you know and and it reminds them of all the things that were upsetting about the way things turned out um so I hope, and I, I've had some indications of this, I hope I've been able to give them a new way of of looking at their brother's life and of seeing it not just as as a as sort of tragic and, and sad, but but that he that he made he made something interesting with his life and, and that there are a lot of people out there who really cared about him quite a bit a bit. Um a how, lot of how the, do you think he died? Do you assume it was an accident? My best guess would be a heart attack. Um but it it's uh but the and body was never found. He was never found. And so he's, you know, technically he's still missing. The The reason that there's not much reason to believe that he will turn up uh, is that his bank account, you know, he, he wasn't like living off the, truly off the grid. He wasn't, you know, killing squirrels and roasting them for his food. He was collecting social security from the jobs he had worked in his, in his life. And he, when he would get into a town, he would go, you know, to a bar and buy himself a burger. Um, and he had a, a credit card. But anyway, he hasn't he hasn't drawn anything he had out a of the credit cards. Did they have an address? What was his address? How did his, they send him? Yeah, so his address was a P.O. box in Bozeman, Montana. Now in Bozeman, Montana, he lived in what he called the swamp, but he had a P.O. box and he was he was an, a faithful correspondent to me. You know, he would collect friends as he went on these trips, and when he got home from his trip, he would write letters to people and he would maintain you know they, eventually they would all kind of fall off but for a while he would maintain correspondence with his friends uh many of whom probably didn't realize that he was homeless but he just had a p.o box in bozeman but he would go to the library and he would and he had an email he had a gmail address right i mentioned that he had a very limited internet footprint but he you know he had a gmail email address and he and he worked at at the university at, at montana state so he had access to and and with his navy pension he had access to health services so he was he wasn't he wasn't you know uh as i say he wasn't skinning cats in the woods to survive he he was on the margins of society but he was there you dedicate the book ben to ian and sam are those your sons they are yes what would you like them to learn from this book uh Two things. So the first was we had just we had just moved to to Piermont where we live now a year before Dick paddled into town, and so I I really wanted them to to embrace the river as a kind of an imaginative space as a you know it's a it's a tiny town right we had my wife and I had been living in New York City when my when my son was born we were flooded out uh, in a hurricane and we re relocated to a town of only two thousand people and uh, the river seemed to me to be the best way to sort of gesture at, at uh, unknown things beyond. And, th and that really was the motivating spirit behind my writing the first article about him. And then the second thing is just, is just um, sort of compassion for, for strangers and, and being willing to listen to people and not overlook them because, you know, Dick Conant, if Dick Conant's life story was this rich, um, then probably there are five people you passed in the last week walking there who might've had stories just as interesting and, and we just don't get a chance to, to hear them. Yeah. I, I, I've been reading it this morning and, and, and it's a, it's a wonderful book, Ben. I think it's, um, it's going to capture a lot of people's imagination. Um, what's been the response so far? 
well, it doesn't come out till next week, so we'll see. But uh, it's been, you know, I've had some great. I hope you'll get a good review in the New Yorker. You better do. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, we'll see. I, I, I've got some reviews confirmed. I haven't read. I got, you know, my the first review actually I got called it a masterpiece of uh, nonfiction, of narrative. Yeah, you nonfiction. got all you got all the all the stars on uh, Kirkus and the Publishers Weekly. So so far, it's been embraced by the critical community. So far, yeah, we hope so. And well, I, why yeah. do you think? Uh, I, I, I think professional writers will love it, and you're, they'll love it because you are a professional writer and a very talented one. What about a general audience? Why should they read it? Do you think? Because it's, it's probably I, you know I do a lot of conversations about nature and politics and economics, and there's always a, a utility in these books. There's no, there's no utility in this book. It's a piece of, as you suggested, non non-fiction fiction it needs to be read for the love of the world and the love of the work right well so the love of the world though i would say is something that we all should have in common uh and and it's a uh, it's escapism right i mean the cover of the book is you showed it earlier it's a it's a yeah beautiful it, the, the, your, yeah. your publisher's done a beautiful job and the, and the title is superb too i don't know if other people have had that title but it's a brilliant title so you know, it's you know, I, I like to think that it's a. You're, you're right. It's a book that I that I would imagine professional writers will will be interested in. But I also think that if it, if if you see that cover in an in an airport kiosk, you might think this is something. You know, here we are. We're we're on a trip. The thing is, many people when they when they hear about a guy like this, they tend to be men more than women. Say kind of like there's a part of their mind that's like, oh, I wish I were like you know the minute someone's. Yeah causing a huge pain in your ass you're like i kind of wish i could be that guy yeah and you know a lot of the things that he experienced were truly beautiful and and i mean the pictures he had i mean that picture on the cover is a picture that he took um and that's a picture right around the right around the corner from my house actually that's the marsh in piermont new york yeah um, but you know he he saw things like that every day of his life while while out paddling and and it's it's beautiful and it and it's, you can, I think a lot of people, I hope a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I would use the word, uh, and this is maybe a slightly pretentious word, it's poignant. I mean, it's it's not sad because, as you say, his life wasn't really sad. He made the most of it. He was unfortunate in some ways, fortunate in others. Uh, but compared to a lot of people, perhaps in his condition, he actually had a reasonably decent life, didn't he? Yeah, and so another another analogy that someone came up to me came up with uh, after my first article, I got an email from a guy, it was a European guy, saying that he was reminded of not just Forrest Gump but Into the Wild, right? And so that's a that's a popular yeah. story of a, of a of a troubled young man rather than an old man who went and did again not in the rivers, it was in the, the in the Alaskan bush, but who went you know in search of something purer and more beautiful because the human life was was challenging him. I, to me, there is a there is a similarity here. The difference is just that that guy, Chris McCandless, in Into the Wild, he didn't survive. Yeah. This guy, he survived five times before he didn't survive, and so he 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 lived long enough. Yeah. For it to be clear that he was never going to to have a conventional life. I think part of the point poignancy is is something that applies very much in Into the Wild as well. And part of what I think viewers of the of the movie Sean Penn's movie or readers of John Krakauer's book what what they identify with is oh wow he was such a promising young man if only you know it had broken another way he could have come back out of the out of the woods and he would have gone on, and he could have had a, a normal life and maybe that's true but i think 
Yeah, it's probably the wrong way of reading it, though. I mean, we're always we always want our our heroes or heroines to be normal, and this guy clearly wasn't, and he never will be. What about romance, Ben? Did he ever have a girlfriend? So, well, he did when he was when he 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 had he had he had girlfriends when he was a you know a high school star. when, as a as a river traveler, he had what I think of as a kind of a Dulcinea or a, or a Beatrice-like figure. She was called Tracy, and he and he talked about her relentlessly. You know, uh, he they were not they weren't you know engaged to be married, but they were close to being. But it was an unusual you know it. it he, and I, from what I the best I could tell, I, I believe they really maybe only met once, uh, but mm. she she became um, a. A sort of a self-improvement device or a literary device for him. Tracy is was is the person he's going to. If he can just prove himself, then maybe they can settle down and she'll she'll finally agree to to be with him. Um, so a, a lot of people seem to believe, you know, if they spent only a few hours with him, seem to believe that that she really existed. I spent enough time with him that I could sense that that there was something a little not quite there about this relationship. Um, well, I, like you, perhaps. His his version of himself was a non-fictional novel. Yes, for sure. Yeah, completely. He was writing. He was writing a story of his life by going on these quests because it gave him a sense of purpose. Sort of, if 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 he was working towards some kind of ending, there was no reason to despair about the the kind of Groundhog Day. in In an odd way, you're just writing the final chapter. Of his life, Riverman, an American Odyssey. You're you're keeping in the spirit of his work and his life and the way he looked at the world, which is, I think, appropriate. That was my intention, certainly. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Ben. A, a wonderful achievement. Um, and I think it's going to be a major new work. I think, particularly, uh, the LitHub audience will love it. I'm sure it's going to be acclaimed, and you're going to be um doing many other conversations about it in addition to uh river man your new book what else should people be reading ben in late march last day of march 2022 to cheer ourselves up perhaps well you know what i just started reading uh and i'm thoroughly engrossed by is uh maude newton's book ancestor trouble um Mm. which is about her sort of exhuming her her troubled family's past and it, and it's interesting she grew up in the south uh she's estranged from her father in the way a little bit that, that dick conant was estranged from some of his siblings dick conant was himself uh really interested in genealogy which is sort mm-hmm. of what the what the subject of her book is in this idea when i think people who are who are struggling to find a a role for themselves tend to look you know tend to you know i think the line that dick used was you have to know where you come from to know where you're going um so i i, I Feel some resonance there in in, in Maud's book, um, and I recently I read *The War for Gloria* by Atticus Lish. I don't know mm. if you're, um, which deals a little bit in uh, kind of toxic masculinity in a in a kind of Boston noir kind of way. That was well, there's nothing toxic in a, in a way. It's a sort of it's the the male version of *Nomadland*. We had Jessica Bruder. Yeah, uh, it's not the formal precariat like nomad land but there is a similarly sort of mesmerizing quality i assume that it will be made into some sort of visual product of one kind or another uh we're there there's some interest there and we're we're looking at that who's gonna play uh conan 
Ben. Yeah, I'd like I've, to put I've on heard... some weight if it's you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard people suggest, you know, John Goodman or Jeff Bridges or uh, what was it, Nick Nolte. I've heard, I've heard lots of different. Uh, different wow. I think it would be a wonderful achievement. I mean, on top of the book to have television show or movie. Congratulations, Ben, again. Thank ben McGrath, author of Riverman, wonderful new book. It's going to win lots of awards, I think. An American Odyssey, which is a quintessential American story. And I think, Ben, you're in many ways very much of an American writer. Um, finally, uh, Ben McGrath, uh, maybe you can come up with something original here. Who's in charge of the world in uh, late March 2022? Who runs the show these days? It's not uh, Dick Conant anymore, unfortunately. No, not Dick Conant. I, I would say angry parents. Um, angry coming coming out of COVID. I've just I, I've even in my own personal life in the last couple of weeks and and the things I see in the news. I think people coming out of COVID have become a little crazier and a little angrier. And they there's a there's a lot of kind of demands being made and and people aren't aren't kind of going along and getting along in the same way. So I think the, um, you see that playing out in all, you know, school boards and. That cheers me up, Ben. I was just thinking, I was envious of you having little children. I've had little children. I'm 15 years ahead of you, but now I'm less envious. So. <laughs> I'm not so angry, but I, but I, but I sense the anger around me. <laughs>